Welcome to Clashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos from the Quincy Institute. Today we'll be talking about Syria's return to the Arab League, U.S. Syria sanctions, and Turkey's presidential election, among other things, with Professor Joshua Landis of the University of Oklahoma. First, let's turn to a different subject, namely the U.S.-India relationship and what the U.S. is hoping to get from India as part of its containment policy against China. The Biden administration has looked the other way, while the Indian government has presided over some significant democratic backsliding in recent years, as we talked about a few weeks ago. That approach was summed up by a political headline from March that said, On India, say nothing. A more recent headline from a Bloomberg report last week said, The U.S. looks past India's rights record as China worries deepen. The article makes it clear that the U.S. is giving India a pass on this front because of the desire to keep India on side. They've made a, culti- a, a concerted effort to cultivate closer ties with India, uh, Biden administration has, and it has done this in the hopes that India will become a reliable pillar of U.S. policy in Asia. But for reasons we're about to talk about, the administration is likely to be disappointed. A new article came out just last week in Foreign Affairs by Ashley Tellis, formerly of the State Department, uh, called America's Bad Bet on China. In the article, Tellis explains why India isn't going to be providing the U.S. with the kind of support it wants in the event of a conflict with China. As he puts it, India, quote, seeks to acquire advanced technologies from the United States to bolster its own economic and military capabilities and thus facilitate its rise as a great power capable of balancing China independently. But it does not presume that American insistence opposes any further obligations on itself. So what did you make of the article, Kelly? What do you think about this? Uh, has the Biden administration overestimated what India is going to do for the U.S.? And what does it tell us about our policy towards China if there are so few states in Asia that want to join in the coalition? Yeah, I think it's a great article, uh, especially for those who might not be too familiar with uh, the U.S.-India relationship throughout history uh, and more recent history and some of the uh, special concerns and interests and needs that India has that are outside of what we expect and what we want from the relationship. So I absolutely recommend reading the the article just as sort of as a primer on where all the fault lines are. You know, I do think that that Biden overestimates its relationship. Uh, I think Trump did as well, but Trump had a much different relationship with India in that he saw some kinship in uh, Modi as a strongman. And as we know, Trump was very much attracted to the strongman figure. And so he had, there are numerous pictures of Trump and Modi hugging, shaking hands, raising their fists, what, what have you. Uh, Modi has is 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 uh, a polarizing figure, a nationalist Hindu nationalist figure, who has enacted and pursued many authoritarian policies in India that would be an anathema to the United States if it wasn't so bent on bringing India into its security hedge against China. So is one of those. Uh, of many examples of the United States kind of turning a blind eye to uh, authoritarian or despotic or undemocratic leaders in countries uh, in, 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 in lieu of our need to have them at our side in some greater geopolitical strategy, in this case, countering China. And so I find it very interesting. I, I, what I, what, you know, aside from all of that, I think what this illustrates is that 
India never did want to be completely under the United States security umbrella and to work in such close coordination militarily with the with the United States. It is happy to engage in cooperation, but mostly because they they need to develop their own defense capabilities, industrial cap- capabilities of their own, and they're happy to share um, those capabilities and technology with the United States. But they certainly don't want to do military exercises, as Ashley Tellis points out. And so, and and of course, they have their own relationship with China. Yes, it is fraught, and they have all sorts of issues going on on their border and skirmishes happening over the last couple of years between troops, but they also have trade relations. They also have geographic relationships with them that, that we, we just, we just can't compete with. And so I, I, I think it does, like you said, Dan, highlight our greater, the greater challenge we have and uh, convincing all of these countries in that neighborhood to turn against their biggest neighbor, which is China. Well, and I think what you see with the Indian government is they want to keep their options open. They don't want to put off ties with any of their older trading partners. Uh, of course, they've maintained fairly good relations with Moscow in spite of the war in Ukraine. Uh, they've they've been buying Russian oil. They've been continuing to make uh, deals for, for weapons shipments. Of course, India relies on a lot of Russian military technology for uh, for its own military. And so... They they're they're never going to be uh, completely on the, the U.S. side uh, on on a lot of these issues, and I, I think it's it's just a good warning not to set expectations too high, because what one of the problems that I think a lot of U.S. policymakers have is that they project their own desires for what a country should do in a region, uh, or, or how it should conduct itself, and then and then sort of expect that to happen based on their projection, and then when that country's own interests take precedence over their expectation, uh, they, they tend to get very frustrated and angry at the country for pursuing its own interests. And so what, what I think Telus's article does very well is tell uh, U.S. policymakers that India is going to put its own interests first. Those interests are not always going to line up with ours, and we need to be reasonable about what we expect from them. And, and don't expect them to come running to the rescue in the event of a war for Taiwan or, or really anywhere uh, in the region. Uh, first of all, they don't want to be involved. Uh, they don't have an interest to be involved. And I think what we're also seeing is that they don't actually have the means to get involved at a level that would be uh, useful uh, to the U.S. either. Uh, so, so in some ways, I think China hawks look at the map and they think that they have this great coalition worked out. Uh, where they can hem in China on all sides, but the, there would be allies in this effort really don't want to be part of it. And I think that, and this points also to the weakness of the, the so-called Quad, the Quadrilateral Dialogue Group, that includes India along with Japan and Australia. And, and the India is sort of the weak link in that because unlike the others, India is not a treaty ally of the United States and is never going to be a treaty ally of the United States. They they desire their own independent force. And they're going to keep on that course just like they've done since their own independence. And so that's uh, that's what we have to bear in mind and, and not expect the quad to turn into some kind of, uh, whether it, sometimes people talk about it as a, as a potential Asian NATO or as some kind of anti-Chinese coalition. And it's it's really not going to be that. Yeah, and I, I, I 
really appreciate you raising the issue of Russia because I know that there has been a lot of consternation within the United States that India has not has been more neutral on the Ukraine Russia war has not signed on to the sanctions for example has continued to buy oil and weapons from from Russia and has been pretty firm about it and I think this talks to this greater theme that you and I have discussed in in past episodes that the global south has has taken a a stand maybe not in a coordinated unalignment like they have in the past but basically asserting country by country that it has its own interests and on this particular issue the russian war in ukraine does not necessarily going to fall in line and if it, it if it wants to continue trade relations with 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 russia for whatever reason it has because it has because it needs to because the the world economy economy is in in tatters right now or it is it is used to having this open channel for energy or weapons it's going to do that and i think that that has frustrated the united states to no ends because they figure they have always been able to buy off these leaders in the past and what and, and what seems to be happening now is that russia and china are quote unquote buying off these leaders and you see that in africa right now the african leaders have been um pretty canny about just saying listen uh china is actually building things in our country uh china is actually bringing some jobs to our country china is actually following through with economic development and that's what we re- we need right now and the united states is all talk and bluster but there's no follow through and so they're basically saying this is this is transactional and i believe because the united states has been so wrapped up in this real twisted um i guess approach to world policy that it, it you know they they will give leaders things but then they put limits and restrictions on them depending on you know um their their moves towards democracies or you know their ability to to help in some uh military fashion with with our 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 personal fights and china doesn't seem to have all those strengths they're just saying hey we want to build this tremendous dam project in your country um we'll give you a bunch of money you know and i'm not saying it's all you know roses and ponies and what not because we all know that there's issues with you know debt traps and and labor issues and the way they treat workers and all that so i'm i'm not trying to put a a gloss on this just to to make a rhetorical argument but China doesn't come with um a lot of strings about democracy and quid pro quos and 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 and, and with their military and all that jazz and I think that the United States is slowly coming to that realization as they see African leaders remain neutral on Russia they see all the things that are happening in the Middle East with the 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 Chinese coming in and brokering diplomatic deals in places that we had not been able to do and so i think we're getting i think we're getting a little nervous and i'll be interested to hear from our um our next guest Josh Landis because he's actually has expertise in this area in the mil- in the Middle East and probably can shed more light on on how that how the US is reacting to Chinese influence there Sure, and yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say as well. And, and just coming back to India, it, it's important to remember um, until relatively recently in in U.S. India relations, 
our relationship with India was was not very good. Uh, it was only really under Bill Clinton that there started to be a, a bit of a thaw and a, a warming of relations. And it was really only under the Bush administration in one of their relatively few foreign policy successes that U.S.-India relations actually took off and started to become uh, a more significant uh, partnership in, in the the way that it has over the last 20 years. Uh, and, and of course, that uh, that was informed by the Bush administration's thinking about hedging against China. It was also informed uh, by their desire to uh, build up uh, closer relations with, with major democracies around the world. Uh, but for pretty much the entire Cold War, and even after the Cold War, our relations with India were quite cool and, and even antagonistic. And I'm, you know, maybe not everyone in India still dwells on this, but they, they will remember that the U.S. leaned in favor of Pakistan during the wars uh, with India, uh, including the the war in 1971, where we, you know, our government sort of winked and and looked the other way while Pakistan committed a genocide in Bangladesh. And so this is something that uh, tarnished that relationship or, or, or soured that relationship going a long way back. And so th there's that history uh, that I think a lot of Americans don't remember or maybe never knew uh, that that colors this relationship. And it, it ex I think it helps explain why India is never going to want to be uh, just a U.S. Uh, ally or satellite. Yeah. And as I was reading in the the papers a couple, just a couple weeks ago that India is surpassing China as having the the biggest population on Earth. And so they're a major, not just population, but economic powerhouse in their own. And I guess have the, you know, they 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 are in the catbird seat, as they say, in terms of being able to call their own shots now, where they might not have been 50, 70, 80 years ago. Right. And, and that comes back to the point that Telus was making in his article which is that you know they intend to be a great power in their own right, and and they have some of the makings of that. I mean, it's still obviously a long way off in some ways in terms of their ability to project power, uh, but certainly their their economy has grown considerably and and will continue to do so. Uh, and of course, you know they have many of their own internal problems, just like anybody else. Uh, but but there's a lot of potential there, and uh, and you know they they're not going to want to play second fiddle uh, to us or to anybody else. If they can help it, so uh, I, I, I strongly recommend the article, and it's a very uh, useful corrective, I think, to some of the the enthusiasm that the China hawks have been uh, spreading. Our guest today is Joshua Landis. He is a professor in Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Oklahoma, where he's also the director of their Center for Middle Eastern Studies and the Farzane Family Center for Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies. Uh, he's also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure being with you. Uh, yeah, we look forward to talking to you today. Uh, of course, you, you, one of the areas that you're uh, most expert in is in Syria. Uh, Syria is in the news this week, uh, returning as a member of the Arab League after more than a decade of efforts by many other members to bring down their government, of course, with U.S. encouragement and support. Uh, Syria is no longer as isolated diplomatically as it had been, uh, but it's still a long way from being reintegrated economically into the region because of U.S. sanctions. 
And the White House confirmed this week that all sanctions would remain in place despite Syria's return to the Arab League. Uh, how much do you think other countries in the region are going to be able to invest in reconstruction with the threat of secondary sanctions looming over them? Well, that's an excellent question. And the, the Jordanian foreign minister, who's been spearheading these discussions, just said this is an extremely modest beginning. He used the word symbolic. He said mm -hmm. because ultimately sanctions are going to have to be lifted and the U.S. and the EU are going to have to join this process. Uh, and so clearly that's the big sticking point will be sanctions. And um, but this does it does set a process in motion. And it, it, it has galvanized the Arab world in an agreement that the status quo is not working, that sanctions are only immiserating people and destabilizing the region. Um, the pushback, the Syrian opposition and others in Washington who don't want to see sanctions lifted and don't like this process have said, no, this is going to embolden a criminal president of Syria and he's going to destabilize the region further uh, because of it. So th those are the two arguments on either side. Um, but the Arab governments now have gotten on the side of that. This is this is only going to help um, calm the situation. It's going to help eventually with refugee return, with stopping the Captagon drug trade and perhaps uh, slightly attenuating Iranian uh, influence in Syria. Those are the three big things they're worried about. And, uh, and, and, and it's going to put the United States and the EU increasingly at loggerheads with the regional governments. And that's, that's what Assad, of course, is counting on. And I think the Arab governments are counting on, on being able to convince the United States that sanctions are not good uh, and they're not going to help anything. They're just going to immiserate the Syrian people. Well, absolutely. And and we've seen that, uh, especially over the last several years, as Caesar Act sanctions have been uh, put in place and have been enforced. Uh, and the Caesar Act sanctions are uh, particularly uh, notoriously broad and punitive, uh, especially with the, the threat of secondary sanctions included. Uh, and you've written about them uh, quite a bit. Uh, how much harm have they caused ordinary Syrians in the last few years? Uh, what, what kinds of things uh, are they affecting and, and how much damage are they doing? They're doing a lot of damage because they raise the price of everything. That's what sanctions are designed to do, and they do it. Uh, they do it very well. We see, we saw this in Iraq when the UN estimated that half a million people died unnecessarily because of sanctions in the 1990s. We know that the Iranian economy has tanked because of sanctions. They lost, I think, about 15% of their GDP uh, just when, after the Trump reimposed sanctions. So they, they have a very powerful effect, especially on an economy like Syria's, which is already uh, which has already tanked, which has gone through 12 years of civil war, has suffered from the Lebanese banking failure where most of Syrians held their money. So there are many causes. It's hard to disambiguate, you know, where. Uh, but we know doctors in Syria, for example, complain bloody murder, that they can't get very important MRIs and other mach fancy machinery that's made in the United States. Parts are from the United States. They can't, they can't get new parts to fix their machinery. You can't update your computer, for example. Um, you know, Google and all these other things, Word, Microsoft Word and, and, and Adobe are all uh, unusable in Syria. You can't update them. So 
all this online stuff, it, it all comes to a freezing a, a halt. You can't, you know, the SWIFT codes are frozen. So banking is basically serious debanked. If you're an NGO, you can't order things. It's, everything becomes more expensive and more cumbersome. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we've seen that in many cases with broad sanctions imposed, uh, where even so supposedly permitted trade becomes impossible because you can't actually process the transactions because no banks want to touch anything related to the affected country. And, and so that's been uh, very uh, debilitating. Uh, luckily, I mean, fortunately, there, there was a slight uh, opening in that the, the administration did offer that license uh, following the earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria earlier this year. Uh, how much has the license helped to facilitate aid for Syrians? And uh, what more needs to be done in terms of sanctions relief? Well, that was, you know, what you're referring to is America gave a six-month lifting of of, uh, of most sanctions. Well, certainly they're encouraging humanitarian, but they they weren't applying sanctions. It was a very broad lift. Um, and this helped tremendously. I know that I benefited from it and was able to send thousands of dollars to a number of friends and to my family members, my wife's family members, all of whom had suffered because of the earthquake. Or we're just suffering because Syria has got no money. And I hadn't been able to do this before. Just using, because it, it created a virtuous cycle. Because, um, for example, Western Union usually charges 15% to process any payment. Then the Syrian government forces you to exchange the dollars into Syrian pounds at some fake uh, exchange rate, which takes off another 15 or 20 percent. So the Syrian government, because America and the Western Union did this, the Syrian government said, we'll give you the basically the black market exchange rate. So all of a sudden you could send money to Syria without losing 35 percent of the money just off of these 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 terrible, you know, everybody raking it off the top. So it helped tremendously and it needs to continue that way. There were so many questions about you needed earth moving big machines in order to help with the earthquake, for example. And the uh, Syrian opposition and others in Washington immediately began screaming, oh, we can't send them tractors. We can't because these will be used for construction. And the sanctions are designed. They're not humanitarian. They're designed for construction. And the Caesar sanctions are specifically designed to stop reconstruction of Syria. So those questions became, you know, very problematic. And large companies like, you know, building tractors and earth moving machines in the United States will not sell to Syria because they they're going to be caught in this question. So uh, there's still many problems, I guess. I don't want to belabor the point, but Sanctions are terrible. We know that uh, countries who've been hammered with sanctions like Iran, like Iraq, have suffered tremendously. Definitely. And and one thing we've seen, uh, and we also see this with Venezuela, is that countries that are already suffering from major economic crises, as, as Syria is, as Venezuela is, uh, are especially vulnerable to the damage that the sanctions can do. And, and so that's, uh, that, that's an essential point to come away with. Uh, turning... Uh, to Turkey, uh, they have their presidential election coming up this weekend, and it seems there's a real chance that Erdogan could lose. Uh, the opposition is united uh, more effectively than it has been in some time. If Erdogan were voted out, what effect might that have on Turkish foreign policy, especially as it relates to Syria? 
Well, that's the big debate. Kilich uh, Darolu, the the opponent who's who who could possibly win, is has said that Erdogan made a big mistake by getting into the Syrian civil war. That he will talk directly with Assad and that he wants to pull Turkey out of Syria and return refugees to Syria. Now, those are big words. It'll be much harder to execute uh, clearly. And already Erdogan has begun to go down that road because he's trying to steal the fire of the opposition by negotiating with Assad. He has not negotiated personally with Assad. Assad refused to meet him before the elections because he he realized it was going to be a photo op and he doesn't want Erdogan to win. So uh, it, it would have an important and positive effect, I think, on the whole reconciliation process. Um, but still, you know, the, the, whether Erdogan is going to let go of power, we'll have to wait and see. Um, we, we, anybody who's watched the Middle East long enough realizes that it's very difficult to get uh, these leaders to step down. Thanks for coming on the show, Josh. I'm honored to have you. Um, just getting back uh, to uh, the Arab League and the detente, the, the invitation for um, Assad and Syria to come back into the fold, it seems as though that the United States has had somewhat of a mixed reaction. It doesn't agree, I, I think, officially in um, extending the, the membership back to Syria, but at the same time, there seem to be some hopeful strains that um, the war would end and that uh, Assad would be held accountable uh, for war crimes and that refugees would be able to return. Can you give us a sense as to where the United States is on, uh, where, where, what role they're playing, if any, in um, this movement towards ending the war and normalization in in the region and whether or not the United States has sort of been left behind in the process because it had been so rigid in its approach to Assad up until now. Right. I, I did write an article recently uh, for your site, uh, for Quincy, saying that I thought the Americans should get on board, more on board in this process and be sitting at the table helping with the negotiations. Because in many ways, this is America's maximum leverage moment. Because once the Arabs have normalized, which they're doing now uh, and have done with the Arab League, they're going to begin to um, they're going to begin to undermine America's position in Syria because it, it's a, it, it is it's standing in the way of regrowth of of um, reconstruction. The sanctions are not good. And the United States has always said, well, we're going to stay in um, we're going to get leverage by staying in the Northeast, by holding the oil, by helping Israel to bomb Syrian locations and Iranian um, assets in Syria and to stop the flow of oil into Syria. So they wanted to gather leverage. But now that leverage is going to be slipping through their fingers because more and more people are going to turn against them. And Assad is not going to negotiate. He's going to see that the Americans are behind the eight ball and he's just going to stand pat and wait for them to get tired of supporting the Kurds. And none of the regional powers, save Israel, want to see in a quasi-independent or independent Kurdish state in northeastern Syria. And that's what the Americans 
are in a sense um, supporting. They, they may not advocate it openly. They say this is just a temporary situation in order to fight ISIS and, and to gain leverage for negotiations to end the war. But, but the United States is hanging on to a fiction, which is that UN Resolution 2254 can be implemented in Syria. And that resolution uh, insists that there be free elections overseen by the UN and that the opposition will play a primary role in Syria's future politics. And Assad won this war. He's not going to let that happen. He's made it very clear that he doesn't, um, he doesn't agree with Resolution 2254, and it's not going to happen. And the Arabs realize this. They got tired of waiting. It's been five years since ISIS has been destroyed, and they've waited very patiently on America's strategy to bear some fruit. And this maximum pressure campaign has not worked. It's only further destabilized the region. It's, um, it's, it's meant that refugees don't go home. It's going to produce more terrorism. And the drug trade has become the alternative in Syria to legitimate trade. So all of these things are going in the wrong direction as far as the Arab neighbors are concerned. And they've, they've got to turn it around. And so they're going to put pressure on the United States to begin to move out. And we've seen this pressure already producing some results, which is the Kurdish leaders just a week ago went to Damascus to try to get some kind of understanding with Assad. Um, and I'm sure the Americans said, go do it. The thing is, the Kurdish leaders said, we want the status quo. We want to have our own autonomous government, and we want to continue with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is our America's proxy militia and largely run by Kurds, to be autonomous, to have it in it, which would, which would leave Syria in an Iraq-type situation, where you have a quasi-independent state in the north of the country. Assad's not going to accept that, and there's no way to impose it on him, because uh, it was imposed on Iraq because the United States was able to write the Constitution and 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 create guarantees for Kurdish autonomy in the Constitution. That's not been the case with Syria because Assad was not overthrown. The, the United States, in many ways, chose not to overthrow him for fear that the, Syria would turn into Iraq or break into pieces. So the Kurds don't have those guarantees. They don't have that leverage, and uh, Assad is counting on the fact that eventually some American president, not Biden, but the next one or the one after that, will get sick and tired of paying more money and keeping American troops in northeastern Syria. And will just bring them home like they did in Afghanistan. And then uh, the whole thing will come crashing down and it'll be very painful if there's not some kind of negotiated transition that that allows people to plan ahead for what needs to be done. One thing that surprised me that didn't get more attention, and, and maybe I was reading it wrong, but it seemed that this declaration, this joint agreement or de declaration that the Arab leaders had signed last week ahead of bringing Assad back into the fold in Cairo on Sunday, in this agreement was a measure that, st that enshrined uh, Syrian uh, territorial integrity or sovereignty, I don't have it right in front of me, and that it it supported the expungement of uh, uh, all foreign forces and militant 
groups from the country, which I took would mean the United States and these uh, Syrian defense forces. Did you read it that way? Or is that, um, is that, you know, some vague reference to something else? Because it seemed to me that they were saying, okay, U.S., you got to pack up and leave at some point, and we're going to support that. Kelly, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, In that language, you could see one of the main reasons the Arab countries are doing this is because they don't want Syria chopped into pieces. They don't want to see foreign occupation of an Arab state. They don't want to see the weakening of the Middle East, which means that Iran and Turkey and the United States become more powerful and more invested in occupying the region. So in order to get rid of Turkey, U.S. and Iranian occupation, if you will, um, this language about sovereignty and the withdrawal of foreign troops is not just pointed at Iran. It's also pointed at the United States. And and that's going to be an issue which I think all Arab leaders and Arab people are going to increasingly insist on. They're going to see the United States as an occupying power. And that's going to put more pressure. And I, I think that Iran and other and the Assad government and Turkey are going to begin to do more military type things to, to, to make it uncomfortable for the United States. And we've already seen Iran um, help to send drones into an American base, which killed an American contractor, wounded five soldiers. This was the first big incident of its kind that was successful. But there are going to be more of those. Now, the United States hit back very hard and killed a whole slew of people. But but um, uh, Iran's going to going to lift the going to lift the pressure, and I think Turkey will help in other ways, and it's already doing it. Turkey is assassinating Kurdish leaders, right and left, in northeast Syria, and the United States isn't doing a thing about it. Uh, it's showing how impotent, in many ways, the America has become in defending its own allies in northeastern Syria, and Turkey is using that to show the Kurds. You know, to send a message to the Kurds, you're not safe with America. America is not your real protector. You've got to go and make a deal with Assad, and you've got to stop all the long checklist of things that Turkey wants in Syria. But it's going to put a lot of heat on the Kurds. Well, let me ask you one quick question. Um, I know we're shifting a little bit, but it, it's also part of the same vein. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, China's involvement in the Middle East and, and in particular in diplomacy, um, especially in its role in brokering the recent detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran. How nervous do you think the United States is about growing Chinese influence in the region? Um, and, and should the United States just allow it to happen, seeing that it's been trying to sort of claw back um, its it's a uh, primacy in, in the region uh, following the failed GWAT or, or countering that would they just want to remain in the country just to spite China to make sure that China didn't replace its hegemonic role in the region? How, how do you see this going? I think um, the United States is very nervous about the Chinese deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran and China's growing uh, you know, rising star in the Middle East. And, and we see it in in public polling where Arabs from one end of the Arab world to the other begin to see China. It's, it's something like 80 percent see China as the most important ally and uh, America much further behind. 
It, it is it is uh, it's a worry for the United States. And I think Jake Sullivan's trip to Saudi Arabia this past week um, was meant to tackle that. And he came out with his big his big thing about we're going to bring India in with the UAE and in a sense, trying to use India as the alternative to China for Middle East countries and that our alliance with India, that India can do the trade and there is this movement, you know, Apple is moving from China to India. And there's has been a series of articles in foreign affairs about whether India could be the new China. And clearly, Jake Sullivan and American security people are looking uh, in that direction because they're panicking. And, and they know that the United States can't substitute for China. We're not producing all the things that Middle Easterners want. And, um, you know, I, I was recently just in the UAE and we had dinner with a, a friend, a Syrian friend who runs a big construction supply company. I asked him, do you get anything from America? And he said, no, everything is from China, from the from the helmets the workers use to their boots, to their to all the construction, the aluminum, you name it. It's from China. And that's the reality is that China is is the behemoth in the Middle East. China's trade with Saudi Arabia is now something like 90 billion dollars a year. America's about four or five billion dollars a year, if you don't count arms. Um, obviously, arms are the big factor that America still is supreme and, and that Middle Eastern, many Middle Eastern countries are dependent on the United States. But that arm wrestling is you know, everywhere to be seen. Jordan just chose to go with not Huawei, which they were considering, but with a European telecommunications company, because the United States says, if you go with Huawei, we're not pretty, we're not going to give you the kind of arms you want. And this has been the stumbling block in the UAE where um, the United States is, was supposed to supply the UAE with F-35s as a, as a reward for the Abraham Accords. But Biden said, no, we can't do it because you've gone with Huawei for your telecommunications and they'll be able to spy and so forth. And they don't want to do it. And this is this is one of the big arm wrestling factors. And I don't know whether the UAE is going to sacrifice Huawei in order to get the F-35s. They, they're now turning to Europe and other countries to try to see if they can get advanced jet fighters in order to twist America's arm to say there are alternatives to the United States, even on arms. And Saudi Arabia is beginning to buy missile technology from China. Others are beginning to go in that direction, too. We saw it with Turkey, with the with the S-400s, the, the big anti-aircraft missiles. So more and more countries are even turning away from the superior American arms because they don't want to be constrained by all the other uh, threads that the United States attaches to that. So, yes, to sum up, I think that America is very worried about the influence of China, uh, which is which is growing very rapidly in the Middle East. Um, I think we're, we're just about out of time, so I'll have to leave it there. But I want to thank our guest again, uh, Joshua Lindis. Thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Pleasure being with you both, Daniel and Kelly. Um, great to talk with you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.